The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to today's program. I'm happy to report that while many things remain uncertain about our world and our economy, it seems that there's an upward trend in gold and silver and that we've seen the bottom already. There's no guarantee, of course, that this is the case. And there are no guarantees whatsoever on this planet, except that, of course, the sun will rise and set every day, at least somewhere. With uncertainty in the world and the perception that metals are oversold and perhaps the dollar overinflated, it might also be a good time to not only acquire physical gold and silver, it could be a good time to take a look at a few of the companies that have been in the business of locating and ultimately sending these potential mines into production. We've seen a gigantic shakeout of junior mining companies over the last few years in a bear market. Companies that didn't have the juice to continue and had no chance of going into production for whatever reason merely faded away. Others that did have a sizable resource but no ability to bring them into production sold their assets or they were acquired through other means. All the stable players with sustainability, cash in the bank, good management and resource in the ground are still around. Granted, that's a select few dozen, and I'm just picking a number here, but nevertheless, they are around and perhaps undervalued right now. Those suppressed values may not stay at the levels they are at for very long. If you're looking for a near-absolute bottom in resource stocks, we could be there, or that time may have just recently passed. It's still very early in a resource stock recovery game, but it can be the time period, or window, if you will, where small fortunes can be made. I'm not telling you to invest. I really can't do that ever. I can suggest that you look at all the variables that may dictate an opportunity for yourself and either take action or not. We present potential opportunities on this program. Analysts, newsletter writers, and other journalists may be doing the same thing on their venues. Listen to the experts and talk to the experts and know this. Most can be wrong, and yet some can be right. Let's begin the program. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, B.C. that's focused on new discoveries, value-added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district, including three properties in prolific Sonora State. The company was formed following the acquisition of Silvercrest Mines by First Majestic Silver Corporation. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on, El. Now, you've had success in the past, along with your management team, with a previous incarnation called, not so oddly enough, Silvercrest Mines. And that company successfully sold to First Majestic Silver. You've been reborn, rising like a phoenix as Silvercrest Metals under the symbol SIL. 
with the same management team. Tell us about Silvercrest Metals and where you're going to be taking the company. We're just trying to do it all over again. Same success we had Silvercrest Mines or the old Silvercrest. Basically what we did with that company in 2006, we made a discovery in Mexico. We took that discovery into a major producer by 2012, 2013. It was done on a phased approach business model. We started out small, we generated cash flow, and from that cash flow, we grew that asset. And it got to a point where Silvercrest Mines was a one asset wonder in the industry with a great reputation. We felt it was time to take that one asset and do a deal with First Majestic Silver. It has a good home now. And the deal that was done was basically we became owners in a major silver producer of about 23% interest. So the Silvercrest Mines or Old Silvercrest shareholders got a big portion of that producer, which has a good following and good respect in the industry. And along with that deal, we did a spinoff, and this is the spinoff, Silvercrest Metals, or SIL on the market. Well, we brought in about $5 million in cash. We raised another $2.5 million, so about $7.5 million in cash. So we are a cash-rich Canadian junior explorer in Mexico. So, like you said, the Phoenix and the rise again out of the ashes of that deal. And we're looking at doing this all over again with the reputation. It's a lot easier this time, Ellis, because we got money in the bank. When we first created Silvercrest Mines in mid-2000s, we had very little to no money and very little following. So we're looking at just creating more shareholder value and doing it again. And you intend on doing that with your flagship property, Las Chispas, also located in Sonora State, Mexico, not far, of course, from the Santa Elena mine, which you sold to First Majestic. Tell us about Las Chispas and why it's a candidate for success. Part of the success formula all along that we've had now bringing that into Silvercrest Metals was to look at things that were simple. They're easy to get to, good infrastructure. We know the area. It's in the state of Sonora. Great access. One of the things that's important when you're trying to explore, develop, and produce, it helps a lot to be about in the same time zone. And if I can get on a plane and I can fly down to site the same day and make critical decisions, that's very important for executive management to have that kind of access. So Las Chispas is located and was carved out of the deal with First Majestic as a spinoff. So it's located about 25 kilometers north of the successful Santa Elena mine, or about a 45 to 55 minute drive in the backyard of currently a producing mine. It's also located about the same distance from the Mercedes mine, which is a Yamana mine, and that's one of Yamana's flagships and their only producer in Mexico. So a great, we call it closeology, a great location and area to be exploring. We're looking at spending about 750000 to a million dollars this year of our $7.5 million that's in the bank account for a discovery at Las Chispas. So Las Chispas, give you a little bit of the flavor here, was a significant silver gold producer between 1880 and 1930. It produced down to the water table, so we think that there's lots of potential to depth there. There's approximately 20 epithermal veins, and only three of those have had any production. Their previous production was about 100 million ounces of silver 
and 200,000 ounces of gold. We do have direct access to a lot of underground workings right now with good values right at the face. So we're just kicking off a rehabilitation program for the project. I can't call it a mine. It's a historic mine. But for compliance purposes, it's not a mine yet. It's just a project. So we're going to open those underground workings. We're going to get a better feel for mapping and sampling. There may be some high-grade material right out in front of us. When I talk high grades, average grade of production was 1.7 kilos of silver per ton and about 15 grams per ton gold. So this is quite a significant grade, and those widths of those grades were from one to five meters wide on these veins underground. You got this thing right out in front of you. We're in rehabilitating. We're making it safe for workers to come in and start to explore underground and with some success have a big discovery. That discovery could be low tonnage, very high grade, or medium tonnage, much larger grade. There's also some open pit potential. We like those too. We've had a lot of success doing that. So we'll be looking at both. Take a look at about 5,000 meters of drilling this year as we try to prove up a discovery there. And since we're so close to these other mines, there's always a potential deal in the background that may come up with the success of Las Chispas. How did First Majestic not get this property as part of the deal with Silvercrest Mines? It wasn't on the table. It would have been something attractive for First Majestic to explore. You have to look at the Silvercrest mines business in that it's in the same valley as Santa Elena. So for the last two years, we've been doing a regional program. This was part of that regional program under the uh, Silvercrest Mines flag, and I did most of the negotiating on this district. you got to take a look at the Los Chispas district as one of these districts that didn't get any attention when the first rush of junior companies came into Mexico in the early 1990s, there was favorable change in the Mexican laws and foreign investment. And there was a flood of junior companies that came in, captured a lot of these districts. These are your first majestic guys that came in, Endeavor Silver guys that had a lot of success in picking up these districts. Las Chispas was locked up in a legal battle at that time and was unobtainable for these companies. So over the last two years, I was able to come in and settle those legal disputes favorably. One of the important things about having success in this industry, especially in a bad market, is not to overcommit the company to large payments. And I didn't want to do that with Las Chispas. We certainly didn't do that with Santa Elena. So this Las Chispas deal is very much similar to the Santa Elena deal that we did in 2005, which became a world-class mine at this point. So want to do it again. We had success in negotiating those deals. So the deal we have on Las Chispas right now is I've paid about $50,000 to go drill and make a discovery with payments of three to five years for a total of $4 million and to don't commit the company until you know if it's there and I can drop this anytime per that agreement. I don't have to make those commitments and those payments. And some of those payments are in shares also. We always like to put a share portion into a deal because it gives some ownership to the owners and the locals and they help protect you. This is all good business, Ellis. Speaking of good business, if you find what you're hoping to find, are you going to take 
take this property into production, in fact, turning it into a mine, or are you going to parlay it off to another company, again, perhaps a company like First Majestic? You always have to follow both paths, Ellis, and uh, we've had success in doing that. I've found that it's a lot easier to follow the production path and not pay attention to the other one and getting acquired until you look, you know, this is a beauty contest, until you make it look so beautiful that it has to be married and acquired. So I try not to get distracted. It has to be a success either way. And I've also found that the bigger companies usually don't jump in until you've taken all the risk out or most of it. And that means you're already in the production and then you get value. And you have enough money in the bank to de-risk the project. Yeah, with plus $7 million in the bank, I've already built a three-year budget around that for discovery. Of course, with uh, a lot of success, you'll have a rise in share price, and also there's a rise in tide in the cycle, which I believe there is coming. Then there's an opportunity to bring in more shareholders with some equity. If you want to get a lot more aggressive, I tend to be conservative I like to do these things systematically and have some patience. If you don't have patience, then you're going to make mistakes along the way. So with a share price of near 15 cents, it would be safe to say potentially that there's a lot of room for upside. Well, we're trading at below cash value right now, if you want to call that upside. And I'm a major shareholder in Silvercrest Metals. I'll go and I will put my own money in, and I have put my own money in, as long as I believe in the management, they got good projects and good jurisdictions, then that's well-placed money, especially below cash value. So, yeah, I see some upside potential there. Eric, I've enjoyed our conversation. Once again, thanks for joining me today on the program. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Eric Fear, CEO and President of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with the president of Gold Source Mines, Giannis Sitos. Gold Source trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Gold Source is a Canadian junior mining company about to produce gold in English-speaking Guyana, bordering the Caribbean in South America. Giannis, welcome back to the program. Elis, thank you very much for the invitation. I have to ask you, Giannis, why should people invest in the sector, invest in a junior mining company, and more specifically, consider investing in gold source mines? That's a great question, Alice. I would like to say for three reasons. Number one is the team. We have assembled a great team with tremendous experience, management and board of directors, more than 200 years of combined experience in the mining industry, ranging from discoveries of deposits, but most importantly, development of deposits into mines, economic mines and production. So on top of 
that if you add the operating team in Guyana, which has experience from past operators, we have assembled a great team, and that's a recipe for success. Number two point is the quality of the asset. Here we are talking about the gold mine, a deposit that is very close to infrastructure. So. We're only eight kilometers from a close community where we draw upon our workforce. And on top of that, the easiness of extraction of gold. We talk about mining 1.5 grams per ton gold on surface on a soft rock. So this management specifically has experience in running this type of development projects of, uh, you know, kind of with easy extraction, which is translated to low operating costs. And that's extremely important for any investor to understand. Here we talk, and we still have to prove it, obviously, but out of the independent compliant engineering studies to about $480 per ounce of production in terms of cash costs only in Guyana. This will put us in the lowest quartile of the market. And the third and most important is the timing. We are just commissioning the mine. Effectively, we initiated production. This is a phase where you try now your development. We completed the construction at the end of January. And this week is the first week of running the equipment and the processing plan. Effectively, gold production is imminent in the coming couple of weeks and commercial production, full commercial production sometime in March. So there's no better timing for somebody to invest in that kind of setup. I'm sure there are those that may question the viability of operating in South America. What is the risk in Guyana? Yeah, Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America, so therefore I wouldn't classify it as Latin America. Effectively, it's a part of Commonwealth, it's a Caribbean state located in South America, an ex-British colony, people speaking English with robust law that is based on British and American standards, and a secular democracy that is stable. Now, the most important part of the GDP of the country in terms of economic activity comes from the extraction of or the resource sector. And I'm talking about here mining, gold and bauxite, oil and gas and forestry. So this is a supportive regime with very friendly people in a good uh, law environment where is protection of foreign investment. We have only pleasure of working in Guyana and we had all the support from all the authorities on the Ministry of Natural Resources. So as Gorsos Mines, we operate there for about six years now. But uh, personally, I used to be with BHP Billiton, so I operate in Guyana for more than 16 years. You, of course, are aligned as a sister company of another sponsor of this program, Silvercrest Metals, sharing in large part their management team. Tell us why you decided to join this team. Because of the quality of the team and, and the breadth. They have been there, they have done it in the past in a couple of occasions and they try to do it again under the new setup at uh, Silvercrest Metals. But it's a great team of engineers and people that are bootstrapped, hands on the ground and extremely cautious with every dollar. So that combined with my philosophy of the phase development approach. So Eric Fear is the COO of Golsus Mines. He's the president of Silvercrest Metals. This is mainly the main relationship but the whole management of Silvercrest is part of the management of Goldstores. Then we have some additional people. We operate from the same office, but beyond that, maybe a couple of common shareholders, we are completely separate entities. But the people, uh, this kind of development companies, I would say, is the essence and the heart of any project. When you want to go ahead, 
You have to trust your team, and this is a team to be trusted. It's very difficult at this time in this market to attract shareholder attention. You've certainly managed to do that with the asset that you have in Guyana. With the fact that you are basically heading into production, it must be very satisfying for you. Yeah, there is a sense of accomplishment, obviously, given the conditions at the market at the moment for the commodities industry. And no doubt, Goldsos has been seen as a jewel. The feedback I get out of peer presidents and other friends in other companies, but also from our key shareholders and even the unknown investor out there. So we see that we have done a lot of things in the last two years. I believe that trust has been built from the point of view that whatever we said two years ago when we merged the two companies and we put the domino effect started at that time, I would say, whatever we promised, we did. And we did it on time and on budget. And that's very big for this industry. Giannis, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much. And thanks for the opportunity to speak to your audience. I encourage everybody to go and see all our compliant engineering data, news releases, at www.goldsourcemines.com. Thank you very much. That website again is goldsourcemines.com. I've been speaking with Giannis Sitos, the president of Gold Source Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GXS. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. Join me for a conversation with Dr. Brant Thompson, CEO and president of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX and ONC on the TSX. Oncolytics Biotech is a biotechnology company focused on the development of oncolytic viruses as potential therapeutics for use in a broad range of cancers. The company is conducting clinical studies using Reolice and its proprietary formulation of the human Reovirus and some of the most prevalent forms of the disease, including lung, colorectal, and pancreatic cancers. Brad, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you, Alf. You just released some news announcing first patients treated in a phase 1b study in advanced pancreatic cancer now these patients have advanced pancreatic cancer we've discussed that realicin has been designed to treat advanced cases what's significant about this particular study and what can we look forward to in the future well this is the first time that we've combined realicin which is our product based on a, you know a live virus and combining it with one of the new class of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors and what checkpoint inhibitors do is basically unbelievable blind or, or open the eyes of your immune system to tumors. Tumors are very effective at camouflaging themselves from the immune system. These new drugs actually sort of take that away and it lets the immune system see a tumor again and help kill it. What Realicin does is actually enhances the activities of these new drugs, these checkpoint inhibitors. And certainly we're very excited about the prospects um, now treating patients with Realicin and them combined together for the first time. And so we treated our first few patients down in San Antonio in Texas. And uh, again, because it's pancreatic cancer, it raises the ante because pancreatic cancer outcomes are so poor. And so we're all basically holding our breath waiting to see what the first results from this clinical study are, which will come quite quickly. So for all stages, as I understand, with regard to pancreatic cancer, it's pretty near fatal. So this sort of study is extremely important, isn't it? Pancreatic cancer is just something you don't want to ever say to a patient. I mean, it's just a terrible, debilitating disease that leads to death almost inevitably. And I mean, there's been some advances in putting off the disease for a while, but 
we're talking a while, we're talking months. And I think the entire industry is waiting for the next big leap forward. And I think using some kind of immune combination therapy of some form is going to be the case where we actually make a difference there. Instead of saying to somebody, instead of dying in six months, you're going to die in nine months, which is hugely valuable. I mean, three extra months means a lot to people. It's that next milestone, it's the next birthday, it's the next anniversary. It means something to people to even people go, oh, what's three months? Well, three months is really important. But wouldn't it be nice to say to a patient, no, you're not going to have six months. You're going to live for three years or longer or five or the dream. You know, say to a pancreatic cancer patient, you're cured occasionally. That's really where we're headed with this area. And so the first time to our understanding that people are doing combined immune therapy in pancreatic cancer patients, I think this is going to attract a lot of attention from a lot of people and most importantly, hopefully from the patient's perspective. When might we hear something either way about this particular study? I would think that the majority of patients should be enrolled sometime this year, but we'll actually start to get data out before that. And that's one of the also exciting things about doing work with immune therapies is that there's all these kind of markers and special assays that you can do and take a look at the patient that can tell you if the actual this immune effect is actually happening long before you actually find out if they live longer. So you will have a very good sense, hopefully not too distant future this year, about how it's working. And again, that's, that's exciting. I mean, I'm used to waiting years, sometimes five, six, seven years to see if a therapy is working. And to say that we started in the calendar year and actually have information that same calendar year is pretty, pretty exciting. So from an investment point of view, let's talk dollars and cents for a moment. Of course, there's enormous value for a pancreatic cancer patient to live another three months or six months or a year or perhaps another five or 10 years and beyond. That would be a game changer. What kind of effect would this have? Have potentially on your company financially if there's success in this area. Can we talk about that? The real value adders in biotechnology, especially in oncology, is adding lifespan to patients. I mean, if we can demonstrate that there's a lifespan benefit to patients using real life, and that is one of the major sort of value drivers in biotechnology companies that look at oncology. And that event in itself is usually the signature event in a big change in valuation in companies. And so it's very important for us to be able to demonstrate that to our patients and to our shareholders. At this time, with everything that you have going on, with regard to your company, you are doing research on several manifestations of cancer. Why do you believe that this particular company, along with others in the sector that are doing great research and, and having success are, are so potentially undervalued? Well, it's a general phenomenon in biotechnology that you seem to have a disconnect with what value is. Some companies, and good for them, that seem to have outrageous valuations on um, very little information. But there's a reason for that. I think it's because the message and the story is focused and it's relatively simple. And because it's focused like that, then people give them credit for that and good for them good for those companies and good for the prospects for going forward. When you look at the commonality of companies that seem to be, quote, undervalued, there does tend to be, it's usually a more complicated discussion and it's a more complicated picture. Data might be a little more textured or whatever you want to call it. And that makes it difficult for people to put their finger on what the real value is underneath. And I think those companies, and I think that includes us, tend to be valued at less. And so it's really our challenge and our job to try to focus people on the kind of core elements of what we're doing 
and the expectation is is that when you get to that point, then you will see a valuation correction just by communicating that in an appropriate way. Well, it's not good enough, and I've always said this to people I know that are involved in, in running public companies, it's not good enough to be doing your job with the business. Of course, that's fantastic. You need a legitimate business to be a public company and, and to go out and ask for money. But it's important to draw attention to the company and let everybody know what you're doing. If you've got a potential solution for cancer, in fact, a solution for cancer, it doesn't do any good if nobody knows about it with regard to investing in the company. You're on the road a lot, making sure that people learn about your company. The whole communicating with your shareholder base and with potential new shareholders is the primary job of public company CEOs. And it's no different in biotechnology than it is in other industries. I think where the difference in biotechnology is, is that our message virtually changes every week as you get more information and whatever, you have to incorporate that in. It's critical that you go out and you communicate face-to-face with your investing group or whatever audience or whatever you want to call it. And that's what we do. And that's what I do. It's easy in a lot of ways because what we do is so exciting. And it's difficult in a way because it does require a lot of time and energy to do that. But it's an absolutely essential core role of biotech publicly traded CEO. Are you getting any kind of feedback from some of the people that you've been treating over the years? You've over 1,100 to date? You know, it's interesting out of every study, we're not supposed to know who the patients are in studies as a company. I mean, that's sort of a basic tenet of the business. But usually at some point when studies are done, almost every one of our studies, a patient will contact us. A patient will go, hey, I was on your X study. and Hey, I'm still here. And so you, you get face-to-face contact with the patients for the first time. And usually after when the study is after it's completed. It's interesting, almost on every study that we have, we have at least one, sometimes a number of very long-term survivors. And this goes back to our very original study. It is an absolute delight when I, sometimes my yearly phone calls or yearly visits, they usually show up out of the blue in my office. And we sit down and I'm looking at this person that was supposed to be dead, you know, five or 10 years ago, and they're fine. That is the best, best present, the best day of my life every year. And I get that over and over again. And it's it's absolutely wonderful to have that kind of contact. The site number and the patient number, so will be like 13-107B or something like that. And then you get this personalized face-to-face interaction with somebody who's apparently derived benefit from your product. It's really an amazing experience. I imagine it provides a, a lot of motivation for you when you're out on the road and also for your, your management team. Everybody knows that they're affecting lives of people that have been afflicted as well as their extended families and friends. You're actually uh, bringing joy to people that you most likely have no idea who they are. It's a very integral part of why people work in companies like ours to have that kind of feedback and kind of support. Honestly, I mean, we're a, a big industry looking at cancer research and from a company perspective because I can't speak of it anywhere else. Every company I know, there's a strong element of that's why people are there. We're here to get a product out. Yes, we're here to get a return to our shareholders. Yes, we're all those things with the business side. Deep underneath that is the, wow, we're helping people out. And, you know, when my staff and my colleagues get access to that kind of information, you can just see what it does to them. The spring is back in their step and the joy is in their life. That is, that is what makes their day. It's a very strong undercurrent in our industry, both the biotech companies and the big pharma companies. I have to say my big pharma colleagues are just like us. We get a kick out of helping people. It's coincidental in a nice way, but it's also good for our businesses. Well, Brad, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to another conversation in the very near future. Thanks so much for joining us again today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Brad Thompson, CEO and President of Oncolytics Biotech Incorporated, trading as ONCY on the OTCQX. Listen to the segment again on our website or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Remember, all of the companies you're hearing about today have paid us for the 
opportunity to be reviewed by you on this program. Do your own research before investing in anything mentioned here. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Come up here every year, January and also June, to meet with my friends, talk to companies, and hang out. And one of the people that I visit with occasionally is a man from one of my hometowns. His name is Mickey Fulp. He's the mercenary geologist. He's quite a following in the sector, and it's always a pleasure to speak with Mickey on the program. Mickey, welcome to the program. Hi, Alice. Good to be here. I'm wondering, let's go back about five, six years ago. If we saw gold at $1,100 an ounce, we'd be extremely excited and we'd be investing in companies with a valuation of a lot more than what they're trading at right now. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the price of gold probably about five years ago started making its big run. In actuality, I thought it got way ahead of itself. I, I thought 1900 gold was ridiculous. It went exponential, and when things go exponential, they will go parabolic. So it came down on the other end. But we got to remember, it started this run at $400 or $300, actually, in, what, 2003? Finally got above 300 and stuck. So the present valuation of 1100 I think, is fair value for gold. As an investor, what are you doing about it right now? I'm sitting on the sidelines for the most part. I've taken some profits when companies make little runs and I can take money off the table. I think you should always take profits, especially in a bear market like this. So taking some profits, I am being very cautious about where I deploy new money. Basically, I take money from profits and I'll put that back in the market when I find things that are compelling. But the days of pure speculation in this business are at least temporarily suspended. (laughs) At least. So you're a more conservative investor than you've always been, or have you always been a conservative investor, even in a speculative market? I've always been a very conservative speculator in a speculative market. From the get-go, we designed a trading methodology that applied conservative metrics to this very speculative industry. In other words, uh, take profits back in the good old days when things double, sell half, take all your money off the table, etc. So the methodology really hasn't changed, but now instead of looking for those doubles all the time, I will take interim profits to take money off the table and reduce my cost basis. Do you think the days of doubles or five bangers or ten bangers are over, or is it just temporary? Well, I think there's still doubles and fives and ten baggers in the market. I think we've seen some of those over the last year. There's much fewer of them. The question, will this industry recover? Absolutely. The world needs metals, the world needs mining, the world needs energy, it needs oil and gas. You know, we've got 85 million more people on the planet every year. Most of those are in undeveloped parts of the world or the so-called second-tier emerging market countries. And I think that's where growth will be. We will continue to grow shy of a complete economic collapse, but we still have 85 million more people that now with the internet know what we have and they want that. So I'm bullish on the long-term future of energy growth, the long-term future of copper growth. This is just a a temporary boom and bust cycle in the mining business, which we've always seen before and always comes back. This is still a sector where most people are completely unaware of the investment potential and have never invested in it. Is that correct? Well, I don't think it's investment potential. It's speculation potential. Investment implies that a safe 
place to put your money that you expect a constant return. So this is a speculative business. It always has been, and it will always continue to be. Whether it will continue to be a speculative business for the Toronto Venture Exchange, I think is equivocal now. I'm not sure the Toronto Venture Exchange will survive. I am certain it will not survive in its present form, so it needs to be revamped or it needs to be replaced, and I think we're seeing the beginnings of that at this stage. I wonder if that purge was intentional, the purge that hurt a lot of these mining companies, which in my opinion, probably yours, many of them had no value anyway. Well, very few of them have any real value. The problem was the Toronto Venture Exchange set up a protocol that allowed companies to proliferate with capital pool companies with the abilities to take shells and the same promoters take shells and kind of revamp them and roll them back and start over again. So that model has really hurt the business. We've got way too many companies. There's not enough good deposits, enough projects in the world to support even the number of companies now. And the stock exchange has been very reluctant to uh, delist those companies, although under their rules they are obligated to do so because they have a conflict of interest. They get fees from the companies and they're a publicly listed company owned by big banks in Canada. So it's a bit of a, a quandary in my opinion. You mentioned copper just a few minutes ago, something that potentially you could be excited about. Are you excited about it now? Are you making any investments in that area? The world needs copper. That's never going to go away. I'm always looking for good copper companies. I would prefer new copper companies to come on the scene. This is the time that smart money gets deployed in distressed assets. There's a lot of things available in the world. You know, I don't necessarily think that the depression in copper price is a short-term deal. It may be a medium-term deal, but we still use on a yearly basis in the world around 3.5% more copper. That was down last year, but we still used 2.5% more last year, so the demand for copper continues. Always looking for good copper companies. I remember uh, close to 10 years ago, perhaps, maybe it was eight years ago, the speculation and the demand for, at least the perception of the demand for copper was very, very high, and it was my perception that there wasn't enough to meet that demand. Is there enough copper to meet the potential demand? China's still growing at a rate of 6% a year, no matter what anybody says. India is coming alive Absolutely. here in the U.S. You know, I don't believe we're going to downsize. We're going to continue to consume. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think the copper market continues to grow. I think, as with most commodities, we got a bit ahead of ourselves. Supply was increasing to meet projected demand. That demand slowed a bit. The growth still is occurring. The growth has slowed, so we have a temporary oversupply of copper. That will be corrected very quickly. The world uses 60,000 tons of copper a day. If you look at official stockpiles, we still have less than about, we have maybe about 10 days of world production stockpiled in surplus copper. So kind of do the math. Copper bottomed, I think, last week. I hope it bottomed at a buck 96. I hope oil bottomed at $26. They both bounced considerably. Copper's over two bucks now. So, but even at $2 copper, a significant amount of world production loses money. That production will will come off at some point, and then we have a supply shortage again, and the price will go back up. I just don't know the timing of all that. 
You've mentioned oil and gas twice in this conversation, so I have to call you out on it. Are you speculating? Are you willing to? Or how about a prognostication for the next couple of years? Well, the world is overwhelmed with a glut of oil right now. And with the distressed prices, what's happened? You would think that production would come off, but an economic production would be shut in. Au contraire. Find me a country in the world, name me a country in the world that did not produce more oil last year in this time of distressed prices because there are so many countries in the world that they're like banana republics except they're black gold republics and they've got balance of payments, they've got social services, they've got to run their unstable, corrupt, or unfriendly governments to the Western world. So they have increased production. The production increased in the U.S., in Russia, in Canada, in China, in Brazil, in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, just Venezuela, Mexico probably came off a bit because they're running out of oil. But that might be one of the few countries in the world didn't produce more oil last year. So, giving that paradigm, when's production going to come off? I have no idea. You know, we could be saddled with a low oil price for quite some time, and that's of concern because oil runs the world. I think a lot of the distress in other commodities in the world, especially things like copper, where growth demand continues, is a trickle-down effect from the oil price. Are you speculating in that area? I'm looking right now. If I would deploy money right now in the oil business. Now, I own a couple of oil companies that are still giving me dividends, but I would be looking at big oil. I think that's where the recovery will happen quicker. So go find a big oil company, a blue chip oil company, and put money into that. That would be my target right now. I've covered lithium companies on this program, more so now than previously. Is it a flavor, or is it something of interest that's here to stay? Uh, It's the flavor of the year, in my opinion. It's the second lithium bubble. We've already seen one that failed in 2010 to 2012. This is all driven by speculation that Elon Musk is going to sell a half a million electric cars in the U.S. in 2020. And I am of a strong opinion that is not going to happen, especially when I can pull up to the pump in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and buy gas today at about 70. And there's rumors or there's analysts that say it goes as low as a dollar. So what's the motivation for people to buy an expensive electric car that, by the way, has a bigger carbon footprint than most gasoline-powered vehicles? It's all driven by the speculation, that, especially in Nevada, that there's going to be a gigafactory demand in Reno for lithium. I just don't think it's going to happen. That said, I own a lithium company. It used to be a gold company in Nevada. Now it's a lithium company. I'm very happy to speculate in that. Which you one know, is it? Nevada Sunrise Gold. So. You come from New Mexico, but before that you grew up in Missouri. New Mexico and Missouri are both ethanol-producing states. Is ethanol dying too? I would hope so, because ethanol has never been energy. It's energy negative, so it costs more money to grow that corn and process it than the energy you derive from it. And that's the number one. Number two, it's bad for internal combustion engine. You're burning 10% alcohol. So, you know, that's a subsidized industry. 
supported by congressmen from the Midwest in the significant corn-growing states, so I personally hope that goes away. You had me thinking about catalytic converters through our discussion about ethanol. What are your thoughts on PGMs at the moment? I think they're oversold. I think that platinum at 820 or 30 or $40 an ounce is a compelling buy. My choice for buying physical metals for the last year or more, maybe year and a half at least, has been platinum over gold because the ratio is out of whack. So platinum's undervalued with respect to gold in a normal paradigm. That said, where's the world's platinum and palladium coming from? South Africa and Russia for the most part. We do have some production U.S. and Canada various other places, but I'm quite surprised that PGM prices have remained so low for so long. We're going to make more cars worldwide this year than we've ever made before, and you know, you've got to have platinum and palladium for those catalytic converters. Mickey, tell our listeners about your website. MercenaryGeologist.com. You can sign up for free. We run a sponsor model, so all my work is free. And for my subscribers, my stock picks are free, too. And you can also tune in on MercenaryGeologist.fm. This interview will be on that. And you can join 52,000-plus Twitter followers at MercenaryGeo. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, well, we work it. We work at it. We have fun with Twitter. It's all over the place of things that interest me. It's not all about mining, but yeah, it's uh and and we have still have 6300 subscribers to the newsletter. Fantastic. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to visiting with you on your ranch next time I'm in New Mexico. Thanks for joining me today on the program. I hope you call me and come by for a beer and some beef raised on the farm. Or some fish that you happen to have in your freezer. Well, we do have a lot of fish in the freezer. Everybody probably knows that fishing is my passion. Looking forward to it, Mickey. Thanks again. Thank you, Ellis. My pleasure. Find the logos of all our sponsors on the homepage of our website. Click on them and learn more about our client companies. EllisMartinReport.com. Once again, this is me, your pal, Ellis Martin, sitting at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And I'm with a colleague and a friend, although that's probably a one-sided assumption here. Uh, I don't know if he likes me or not, but I like him. He's a nice guy and a talented singer. The Tom Jones of the province of British Columbia, Mr. Nick Nicholas. Nick, how are you doing today? The Tom Jones. No, do I have to do a Tom Jones songs now? <laughs> Listen, Ellis, I have known you for many, many years. I've been in this mining industry since 1980, and I've been in four of these cycles where we had a bottom and then a euphoric part of the cycle. The euphoric part of the cycle is always when people start buying, and while they should be buying when things are at the bottom. This particular conference is a wonderful conference. To me, it is a great money maker. People that are here and are looking for companies to buy into, 70% of the companies that are here will throw off big money in 2018-19 if they buy into it now. Of course, a lot of people are loath to buy in at the bottom, but these people that are here, most of them are you know, buy, looking for companies to buy at the bottom. So that's where things are at. I, I think this conference is probably one of the most important conferences they have been to and will be in at right now. And like I said, 2018-19 is when they will see the benefits. It's not too easy to see that right now, you know. So are you recommending that our audience 
buy whatever they can, buy good companies at these unbelievably low bargain prices, even when the price of gold is around $1,100 an ounce, could drop down to 1000 but still compare that with prices back in 2005 and 2006 when the stocks were doing better and gold wasn't quite as high. Are you recommending that people just buy, hold, and forget about it for three years? Well, first of all, your last question was buy gold. No, I do not believe that you should be buying gold. I do believe that gold will go much higher starting at the end of the year. Although, and I've said this to you, we have not seen the low in gold yet. It will still have to break through a thousand, but that's immaterial. The time to buy is now. People should be buying. Most people do not know how to pick DLO. I just happen to be somebody that, uh, with the help of uh, Martin Armstrong, who you know I've followed for many, many years, basically says to you, we are close to the bottom. The bottom is not there yet, but we are close to it. But should you buy now? Of course, you should be around here looking for companies. And then I say to people, yes, you can buy 70% of these companies around here and make big money by 2018-19 because you are buying at a low maybe not D low but it's immaterial I mean how low is low I may be right about gold still having to break through a thousand or I may be wrong but it is a low right now so people should be buying yes for sure since we're not necessarily talking about gold per se any particular type of metal or company, or does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. When, I, when I'm talking about gold going below a thousand and so on, I'm also talking about the other metals, be it copper, be it zinc, be it lead. I love zinc, by the way. And I talk about base metal companies as well. So, definitely. There's one company that should be bought right now, unless you want me to mention the name of the company. They do not have a booth here. But that's a very interesting company. John Kaiser has been recommending it steadily, and that is uh, SCY, Scandium. Scandium mining, which is <laughs> right now at a price that... At this Scandium is a whole different thing. If I can recommend one company outside of the companies that are here, then that's one. Are you a shareholder of this company? Yes, I am. I made money on it already, and I sold, I think, 23 cents or something like that, and now I've been steadily buying it back. Now, of course, you're not telling anyone to buy the stock, per se. You're recommending that our audience take a serious look at it, correct? Oh, absolutely. I'm not an advisor. That's a sure thing. And regardless of anything, it doesn't matter what people should always do their own due diligence. No matter who they talk to, do your own due diligence, just verify what you've been told, look for very strong management. If you can trust management, that is most of the battle. If you get good management, they will find the projects. Then if that management also adds marketing to it, uh, investor relations or name branding, whatever, uh, whatever you want to call it, if they add that to that, then you've got a th very strong three-pillar platform. Without all three of the management project and marketing, you don't have a proper platform. Speaking of marketing, tell us about Mining Interactive. Uh, Mining Interactive used to market. I used to be a, I'm still a promoter um, for all intents and purposes, but uh, I do not represent any companies at the moment. There are some companies that have asked me to come and work with them. Some of them I've turned down very flatly. Some of them I'm in discussion with, but my price is pretty high, so most of these companies cannot afford me right now, which I appreciate. But if I can get the right company that uh, gives me the right kind of options, you know, then I will go to work for them. But it's got to be a company that has the three-pillar platform. Without it, I have no interest. Well, Nick, it's always a pleasure to see you, and thanks for coming on the program today. 
Martin, it's been a pleasure. And people that are listening to you uh, have been for many years. And now is the time they really should be listening to you because now is the time the resource sector is ready, ready and able. I've been speaking with Nick Nicholas of Mining Interactive. Once again, I'm Ellis Martin from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Thank you. Welcome to Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. Everybody loves anniversaries. Well, most people, I'm referring to automotive anniversaries. Chevrolet had their 100th. Ford had their 100th, Mopar their 75th, Mustang had its 50th, and now Jeep is having its 75th anniversary. In celebration, FCA is creating special editions. You knew they would. They'll be easy to spot with green exteriors and satin bronze wheels with orange accents. According to FCA, they'll have unique interiors and 75th anniversary badges. Of course, you should begin to spot them in showrooms in the not-too-distant future. In fact, some may be there now. And what comes with Anniversary Special Editions? Well, an Anniversary Festival get-together. The Bantam Jeep Heritage Festival is running June 10th through the 12th, 2016. Save the date and start making your plans now to come to Butler, Pennsylvania, birthplace of the Jeep. Watch for even more special events celebrating the Jeep's 75th anniversary to begin popping up in the near future. You know how to Google for that. It's time now for the Car Kicks Car Quiz an event intended as an introduction to the off-road sport for newcomers that is one of the most basic and takes the form of a course with gates that is carefully laid out so that it requires definite skills to drive but carries no risk of damage to the vehicle or injury to the driver is A. Dune bashing B. Green laning C. Tyro trialing or D. Rock crawling We'll have the answer in just a moment just like to take a moment and call out carparts.com. It isn't just a website, it's a team of people dedicated to getting you the right part at the best price. My experience with them was excellent. The part arrived damaged from shipping. It was expensive and heavy. Carparts.com didn't miss a beat. With one contact to customer service, a new part was flying on its way fast. Try carparts.com. They have over a million parts and accessories. They have high-performance parts that'll help your engine churn out more power or just that hard-to-find replacement part. Their large selection of parts combined with their user-friendly interface makes shopping easy. Finding your needed components is a snap because of the features on their site. They offer a low price guarantee as well with every product that they offer. Shipping is fast. As I said, my experience was absolutely stress-free. Excellent customer service and no sweat problem resolution. I endorse them as a quality provider. Use carparts.com next time you need a part for your daily driver, hot rod, classic, or off-road vehicle. Carparts.com. And now here's the answer to your car kicks car quiz. The answer is C, a Tyro trial. The name comes from the Latin word Tyro, meaning new recruit. Tyro trialing is intended as an introduction to the sport for newcomers or even children. Vehicle modifications are not allowed. Some organizers even ban the fitting of different types of tires to those that the vehicle left the showroom with. That's your Car Kicks Car Quiz. Toyota, known in management circles for the Toyota Way, is about to turn the corporate management aspect of its operations on its ear. According to a report in the Nikkei Business newspaper, Toyota's considering grouping management around products rather than geography. There's also hoping this new structure will groom future Toyota management. The in-house groupings will be passenger vehicles, compact cars, commercial vehicles, and Lexus on its own. Currently, they have things arranged into two geographic groups, like many automakers before them, Toyota has rolled out a new global architecture, which means their cars have common underpinnings and common components to cut costs. This practice dates way back to the very beginnings of automobile manufacture. Toyota is hoping to have half of all its vehicles on new cost-saving platforms by the end of the decade. 
Meanwhile, back in Volkswagen, in their shoot-yourself-in-the-other-foot department, it was announced that VW is looking to expand its offerings in the Islamic state of Iran and are currently there in talks with potential importers. BMW is a little more cautious, waiting to see how things unfold politically and economically. Iran was shut off from the world market after the 1979 Islamic Revolution, and Audi was not yet known as being an upscale luxury brand. It certainly is a curious move for a company whose reputation in the United States has slid below politicians and door-to-door salesmen. The Scottsdale Auction Week happens the last part of January and is pretty much mecca for classic, hot rod, and specialty car fanatics. It pulled no punches this year. Even Russo and Steele had a pair of 429 Boss Mustangs. Of course, all the other auctioneers, including Barrett-Jackson, had a cornucopia of classics, hot rods, and special interest cars and trucks to choose from. If you've never been to Scottsdale Auction Week, you need to have that on your bucket list. It should be at the very top. Mecham Auctions has been building their Kissimmee, Florida show over the last few years and had 3,000 cars, 3,000 in one giant auction, also in late January. Now, if they could just get them coordinated, January would be every car guy's vacation month. That's it for Car Kicks. I'm Bob Lang. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.